When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I'm glad you joined us today. A reading from the Acts of the Apostles. After he was in prison for some time, Paul was permitted to state his case before King Agrippa. Paul said to the king, Indeed, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things against the name of Jesus in Nazareth, and that is what I did in Jerusalem, with authority received from the chief priests. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but I also cast my vote against them when they were being condemned to death. By punishing them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And since I was so furiously engaged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities. With this in mind, I was traveling to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. When at midday along the road, your excellency, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and my companions. When we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It hurts you to kick against the goads. I asked, Who are you, Lord? The Lord answered, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you to serve and to testify to the things in which You have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. After that, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout the countryside of Judea, and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do deeds consistent with repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And a reading from the epistle of St. Paul to the Galatians. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin, for I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You have heard, no doubt, of my earlier life in Judaism. I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles, 
I did not confer with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me. But I went away at once into Arabia, and afterward I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter, and stayed with him fifteen days. But I did not see any other apostle except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard it and said, The one who formerly was persecuting us is now proclaiming the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul commemorates that time on the Damascus Road that we read uh, at the first reading from the book of Acts. There are several accounts of this conversion experience. Uh, the source of them is, of course, Paul, as he's the one that had the experience. Um, and yet every time he tells it, there's a slightly different, slightly different details that he includes. He tells the story in the book of Acts as a narrative that the author of the book of Acts, Luke, uh, relates it. But then um, while, P- while he's on trial uh, with King Agrippa in the Acts 26 reading, and I think one other time with another king or magistrate or somebody, he tells the same story of his conversion. Uh, at the heart of Paul's ministry was this experience with Jesus. And every time I read those accounts of Paul persecuting Christians He was zealous for the faith. In the book of Acts, he is holding the coats of the men who are stoning, throwing rocks to kill Stephen, the first martyr. Paul is part of that um, murder, martyrdom. Um, Unjust, just as Jesus' death was unjust. Um, Stephen was in trouble for preaching, for teaching. Um, Again, not worthy in, in any legal system that we can imagine being just as being a worthy reason for capital mob violence punishment, really vigilante justice, we might call it nowadays. Um, but Paul was part of that. It seems like his zeal for the truth was real. Um, every time I think about that, it's kind of disturbing that someone could be completely convinced that what they were doing was right. And in some sense, he was right. Um, You know, we might consider Christianity the truth to be the truth. We do, I think, as Christians. I hope we do anyway. And that can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people. For most of us Episcopalians today, that doesn't mean that, that we're the only ones who know anything or we're the only ones on the planet who uh, can make decisions that are responsible or just or anything like that. To say that the Christian faith is true is not a necessarily a dig at other religions. I always think of St. Francis when he went to preach to the Sultan. He went to convert the Sultan during the Crusades. He traveled to Egypt and 
went across enemy lines and they only spared his life, the sentries on the, um, on the Muslim side of the caliphate um, that were being besieged by the crusaders. They let him through and took him to the sultan because they didn't know what else to do with this crazy guy. He was yelling and screaming. Um, they brought him up there and and instead of doing the normal Christian approach to evangelism, which was to start with how bad of a guy Muhammad was, usually Christian teachers and preachers would start with the violence of Muhammad, his marriages to young women or children, um, sort of indictments of his character and try to break down Muhammad. And then, um, but that would always offend Muslims really deeply. And and then they, they wouldn't really get anywhere as far as building mutual interest or discussion. Um, but Francis was different, and he started with Jesus. He started with what a wonderful Savior and friend Jesus is to him. Um, a very different approach to evangelism and connection with other religions. So I try to take that approach when we talk about Christianity being true. We who believe it and follow it should believe it's true and should actually enjoy it and think it's good news uh, to us, first of all. If it's not good news to us, if it's not something we are thankful for, then I don't think we should try exporting it or sharing it. Um, If you hate your car, don't tell other people to buy the car, you know. Um, So when we say Christianity is true, I don't mean that every other religion is, is completely false in the way that we think of as Um, evil or dangerous or something like that. But to say that Christianity is true is that God revealed in Jesus is an accurate representation of God. And Jesus as the Messiah who fulfills the prophecies in the Old Testament, who is witnessed to by God, sealed by the Holy Spirit, is the the founder of our faith and the one we follow. But Um, When we read the Bible, we know that there's a transition period that is marked by the signs and wonders, the miracles that Jesus and his early disciples performed. Some of those miracles were ecstatic utterances of languages at Pentecost. Some of them were healing miracles that the apostles did to verify their authenticity as the inheritors of the tradition, kind of like Elijah and Elisha both performed similar miracles to show that The prophets have the same source of God's power. But there is a transition that happens between the Old and New Testaments, and that transition happens in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. It doesn't happen sort of in the blank space between the Testaments that you might have in your Bible. It happens in the Gospels themselves, in the life of Jesus, and in the early church in Acts. The early disciples of Jesus were baptized by John's baptism, Um, And it never really says all of them were baptized. Um, We assume they were because they were John's disciples, and we imagine impossible to be one of John's disciples without experiencing that baptism. But um, not everything is ironed out at this point. And so there's a transition period, pre-crucifixion, pre-resurrection to post-crucifixion, post-resurrection. It's all the same God, all the same Savior, and all that stuff. But there is a transition, and so to be a faithful and devout Jewish rabbi and teacher and leader, um, we wouldn't say was out of out of line with the with the aims and goals of Jesus and Christianity. Jesus Himself is a devout 
member of the community in which he is born in, which is Second Temple Judaism, we would call it today from a historical perspective. The Second Temple, Nebuchadnezzar destroys the first one. Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel built a second temple. Herod comes along and builds a porch for it, so it's glorious. And this is the temple that Jesus was part of, and the priests and Levites who administered the temple, the high priest Caiaphas and all that, Jesus is part of that faith community. He is an active participant in the life of the temple, in the life of, of Judaism of his day. And so to be a devout and faithful practitioner of this faith is completely the way God has called people to be. That's why Paul says, I was called in the womb um, to do this kind of work. But this transition period makes this possible that Paul, Saul, as he's called, his Jewish name is Saul. His more Greek name is Paul later. Um, This is not because God changed his name. Um, He's called Saul all the way up until his ministry with the Gentiles, and then his name kind of shifts in the narrative of the book of Acts. But up till then, he's just called, these are interchangeable names for him. But um, to be a devout persecutor of Christianity, for Paul, was the way he was following God. And that shows me that um, the possibility for being sincerely sincerely and devotedly wrong about something, especially in a transitional time, is something that we need to take into account for humanity. We like to think we are rational creatures that can sort of figure out what is good and bad all the time. And many times we can. Our discernment or spidey senses can kind of tell us if something's good or not. But that's not always true. And it wasn't true for Paul and for Saul. He had to have his Damascus Road experience. He's traveling a long distance to go and round up Christians who have escaped or are there practicing their faith in Damascus and to imprison them. He says he's tortured them. He tried to get them to renounce Jesus as their Messiah and in, through those torturous ways. <clears throat> and we want to say that for a lot of Christians throughout his, our history, Christians have used these narratives of being persecuted to turn them around on the Jewish minorities that lived around them and say, because Jewish authorities persecuted us in our early days, we, it's now legitimate or okay to persecute Jews that live around us now. And that's never been good, never been right. It's always been evil for Christians to say that, to use these texts of scripture to be anti-Semitic to Jewish people that were living in peace around them. Um, That is always evil and wrong. And so we want to read these texts in the the way they were written by a tiny minority group called Christians in the vast Roman world of which Judaism was a recognized religion, a tolerated religion in the Roman Empire, um, whereas Christianity was not. And so Jewish authorities under the high priest family, the ones who had killed Jesus, um, or at least been part of Jesus' trial and handed him over to the Romans to be killed. Um, this continual persecution of Christ- Christians by these Jewish leaders um, that were running the temple at the time um, was a majority persecuting a minority, whereas now anti-Semitic persecution, and for most of Christian history, 
has been the majority of, of Christians persecuting uh, Jewish people. So again, that power imbalance is something we have to recognize. And Paul, though, is convinced that what he's doing is right. And Jesus meets him. The, the Christian life is an extremely personal thing with Jesus. It is meeting Jesus. And it's not that we have to have these big experiences. I've never had an experience anything close to what Paul experienced. Um, I didn't go blind for several days. I didn't fall off my horse, whatever. I didn't hear a voice like that, like Paul did. But my experience with Jesus is what has kept me as Christian. Um, Mostly, I know Jesus through what he said, through the Gospels. We need to get to know that Jesus. Simply reading the Gospels. We do it every Sunday. We try to do it as often as we can. Reading the Gospels, the stories of Jesus, is a very important part of being a Christian. Um, you know, even if it's just a little snippet here and there, um, those are ways that we connect with Jesus, what, who he actually was when he was here on this earth. And then the more mystical connection to Jesus that Paul has, um, that he understands the love of Jesus when, in his time in Arabia, in his time when he's wandering around listening to the, to the message of Jesus um, this is where his faith is formed, his apostleship is confirmed. And this is where he gets the, the drive to go to the Gentiles. He certainly debates with Jewish leaders that he used to be part of, in many cases, in synagogues and other places. But ultimately, his mission is to the Gentiles. This is what church planting is, is taking the message of Jesus and the community that Jesus started both sacraments of baptism and Eucharist, and saying, we want to include people who have not been part of this before. We want people who haven't been going to church to experience Jesus. And we believe, as Christians, the best way to do that is in the community Jesus started. But there's lots of other ways to meet Jesus. We want to be open to those ways as well as church planters. But this is the work that Paul set out to do. And again and again, through all the things he went through, his main concern was the health and vitality of these churches. Paul never wrote a book. In fact, he says he didn't try to be a great orator. He did not try to wow them with his writing or with his speaking. What he tried to do was plant communities that would embody the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and live that out every single day of their lives and bring other people into that fold as well. That was all what he was about. His letters have kind of been held up as great works of literature or books or something like that. But ultimately, they were letters to churches to help them grow, to help them thrive, to help them stay connected with God and with each other. Um, Paul is also vilified often for his um, words, the things he says in some of his letters. Um, Certainly, his statement that women ought to be silent in the churches. Again, the reason we have a canon of Scripture is that one verse is not to be pulled out and held up as the ultimate proof of some sort of global, universal teaching on men and women's behavior in church. We know from other places in Paul's writings that women preached and prophesied and spoke in churches. Both spoke in tongues, they preached, they prophesied, they prayed publicly in churches, and Paul addresses them as well, um, as if that's a normative thing to do. So 
Um, on the one hand, we have these texts about probably a very specific person um, who needed to be silent in that church, according to Paul, who is far away, who cannot really enforce this rule or do much about it other than to say, um, you know, this situation has gotten to be really destructive and um, it's better that this we just make this rule for you guys. And um, to me, that's how I read those letters um, about women in authority and leadership. Paul says several times that, that in Christ there is no male or female, no Jew or Gentile, no Scythian or uh, he mentioned some other groups, but no slave or free person. Um, in Christ, we are all equal, male, female, everyone. Um, there is a equality of everything in Jesus Christ. And that is always what Paul taught. He repeats it more than once. Um, his instruction to that one church with that one situation, with the one woman who was, whatever was going on there, um, that is the exception. But the rule of Paul is that everybody um, is equal before, in Christ. And that, um, that while some social situations, like the rampant slavery of the ancient world that Paul lived in, Paul does his best to free enslaved people many times, but he, just like Jesus did, he lived with the reality of slavery around him. Um, he called for its ending and liberation, but he also had to work within it um, to accomplish what God had called him to do. Same with the um, gender-based um, roles that he addresses in his letters several times that um, there is a hierarchy in the society that he lived in of men over women and authority structures. But again, he says that all of us are equal in Christ. So in Paul, there's always this sort of practical accommodation. For instance, he's arrested for being a Christian, for preaching Jesus, and then he claims his Roman citizen. I'm a Roman. How dare you touch me and, and mishandle me this way? How dare you beat me without a trial? Um, he says, you know, I'm a Roman, uh, Roman citizen. Leave me alone. And they do. Um, it works. Another time he says, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm, a, I'm the most devout Jewish rabbi leader you've ever met. And you need to respect that about me. Um, and they, you know, they back down. Paul is a um, living in the very real world, and he uses whatever he can to accomplish the mission for, for Jesus that he's been set to. It's not for his own personal gain or privilege or prestige or anything like that. Everything he does is one goal in mind. Does he fail? Yes. Does he get discouraged? Yes. Does he get angry? Yes. Does he um, often... Um, uh, have mood shifts that you can read right there in the text? Yes. Um, all these things are true about Paul, but ultimately kept moving towards that goal. The other problems with Paul in the modern world, people in medieval medieval world and before us had other problems with Paul that don't seem like a big deal today. But um, the other problem with Paul is his language that seems to indicate that um, he believes that homosexual people are inherently sinful. Romans 1 and a couple other places where he uses um, terms that became translated in the 1980s as homosexual, although that word is a fairly new one that comes from the psychology community, um, not really from the Bible or anywhere else. And 
we're going to look at these at a um, pub theology coming up with Pflugerville Gaze. Um, the clobber passages are often called that Paul writes. In Romans 1 is probably the most famous where he even describes um, women and women being together and men and men. Um, again, if you read in context what Paul is writing about, um, he's talking about the uh, non-Christian Gentile societies around him um, and the ways they exploited each other sexually. Um, this is well documented in Roman history, in Greek history, and the history of the first century, that so much of the sexual license was abusive. It was people in power abusing people with very little power. The world that Paul lived in was extremely hierarchical, not just racially, but uh, class and citizenship played a huge amount into it. In the Roman world, about two-thirds of some places in the Roman world were enslaved people. Um, there was a, just to get, just so you grasp kind of the, the magnitude of this, um, there's this thing called the Fergian cap, um, which is the cap that's actually on the army seal. It's that red cap that's on the pike on the army seal or the army flag, U.S. Army flag. It's the cap that was symbolized in the French Revolution, that red cap that people wore to symbolize their freedom from the monarchy. But that was the cap that was used by formerly enslaved people when they were um, given their freedom at the end of service or when their master died. Um, we often see that as sort of altruistic, that when somebody dies, they will that their slaves will be freed. But generally speaking, it was only the older slaves that were freed. And that was to free up the masters from having to care for elderly enslaved people um, who could no longer work at the same level they used to be able to work. So we, what might be seen as a merciful or kind thing was actually a, just another level of cruelty of the enslavement system. And so um, there was a time where Rome um, outlawed it because if people only knew how many freed slaves were running around, they would wake up one day and say, oh, there's a lot more of us than there are of them. Also, Roman society occasionally tried to enforce a dress code on enslaved people, make enslaved people wear certain clothing um, so that they could be distinguished as slaves. But um, there was also pushback about that, again, for the same reason. If, if all the slaves in Rome realized um, how many of them there were, they would have a lot more uprisings. There were many slave uprisings in the Roman world. Enslaved people were crucified generally if they tried to escape um, or harshly punished, much like in America and the lynching days and the punishment against enslaved people before the Civil War and even after the Civil War against uh, black Americans and African Americans. But a similar kind of thing was happening in Rome in the world that Paul lived in. And so much, just as in the slavery in this country, um, so much sexual exploitation took place um, for enslaved people. And yes, Steve, we are praying for you. Thank you. Um, this, um, this certainly is um, the problem that Paul is addressing in his letters. Paul is equally um, upset and um, denounces and calls out the sinfulness of predatory sexual relationships for heterosexuals 
Um, we might we might say heterosexuals today. And Paul, though, in Paul's world, those things were not distinguished between homosexuals and heterosexuals. There was simply men who had power who took it um, and men who abused others based on their power. And they abused both uh, same-sex victims and opposite-sex victims. There was just more same-sex victims to exploit. Um, and so that um, that kind of exploitation and sin seems to be um, a lot more of what Paul's addressing. And that's wrong in Paul's day, and it's wrong in our day to use power to coerce um, anything from anybody, especially um, sexual assault and violence. And so um, I think reading Paul's text that way is a much more responsible way to read him when it comes to those things. But again, as, as you've heard me say many times, Paul is a lot more gushing in his love for people than even Jesus in Jesus' words. Obviously, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our sins is a loving act that really word goes way beyond words. But Paul says so many loving things to people. You can see a real intimacy and closeness in his ministry that um, we really don't see anywhere else um, in the Bible. Uh, we see this in some of the other apostles' letters, but Paul's letters are intensely emotional. Um, they are um, personal. Ultimately, this is what ministry is. This is what Jesus called us to do, is to care, to love, to challenge, to listen, to do what we can from wherever we are, even if it's in prison. M many of Paul's letters were written from prison, um, as he was in prison for what he said and what he believed about Jesus. Um, this is Paul as well. And we need to remember that that is, the, that is the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle to many of us who come from non-Jewish backgrounds. We owe our uh, inclusion in Christianity to this early apostle who Jesus called and blinded and then helped to enlighten uh, the dark world of the, of the Gentiles around them. So we thank God for Paul today. O oh God, by the preaching of your Apostle Paul, you have caused the light of the gospel to shine throughout the world. Grant, we pray, that we, having his wonderful conversion and remembrance, may show ourselves thankful to you by following his holy teaching through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.